Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now work in your word, work by your word in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit to enable us to despair of the things that we should despair of, that we might receive from you the gift of being a creature. Lord, help us to accept our place in your created order. And help us to look to you as dependent creatures for our daily bread and for the joy that only you can provide. Lord, we look to you. We pray that you would work today such that we would be people who believe, that we would believe the gospel, believe the scriptures, and hope in the return of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do this saving and sanctifying work in us. In Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the last two pieces of this chapter, verses 18 through 23, and then verses 24 through 26. There are two parts of this chapter. In the first part, verses 18 through 23, uh, Solomon deals with the problem of having to leave everything that he has achieved to someone who comes after him. And in the midst of that section, he's going to say in verse 20 there, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And we'll talk about uh, what, what he means there, but it's, it's, it's sort of a low point in the development of the book. But then in the very next section, verses 24 through 26, he speaks of how from the hand of God, he receives joy and wisdom. And, and he speaks of how we can and should enjoy our food and drink and the toil in which we engage. And on Friday, I, I was at my desk working on my computer and I, I wrote the section uh, for this sermon on verses 18 through 23. And at the end of that section, I came up with this great way of describing how out of the ashes of his despair, the phoenix is born anew. You know, the ashes of despair in verses 18 through 23, and then this phoenix rises, phoenix of hope and joy rises in verses 24 through 26. And then I get up on Saturday morning to write the section on verses 24 through 26, and I make some edits on that, that last part that I thought was so good about the phoenix. And then I hit command S, and then my computer locks up. And so the only thing I can do is force quit Word and restart the computer. And I reopen Word, and my edits are gone. Everything I did Friday is still there, but the edits from Saturday morning are gone. So I think to myself, well, maybe if I close it down again and restart it again, I'll have everything that I've just edited. And so I do that. I closed it down. I, I command S, close it down. Restart the computer, which takes a long time because everything's clogged up, sl moving slowly. Open the document, everything from Friday is gone. And I'm thinking, Ecclesiastes 2.23. <laughs> All his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. 
And so, so I start sending out these desperate pleas for help. And thankfully, this wonderful, uh, talented, capable magician wizard, computer wizard from Southern Seminary, it's Southern's computer, he, he calls me on the phone. You know, he does the screen share thing. He, he takes over my computer. He opens up all these files that I didn't even know existed. It's amazing uh, what's, what's on the machine. The document is gone. It is nowhere to be found. And, and after, you know, 30, 45 minutes with him in my machine, he's like, I've looked everywhere there is to look. Well, I'm not ready to give up. So I call Andrew Barron, and Andrew Barron logs into my machine. And then I tell him that Aaron Kiefer has been on the thing, and he's like, oh, if Aaron's been in here, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no use me being in here. Aaron knows what to do. And, and so finally, I realize it's gone, and I'm just going to have to redo all the work. And praise the Lord, Saturday was mainly clear, and so I got to redo everything. That's the way it goes in a fallen world. You can take all the right steps. You can save the document. Now, I'm sure there are other ways I could have saved the document, right? I could have emailed myself a copy. I could have done, I could have taken, but I hit Command S. And the thing is backed up to Google Drive. It's not supposed to fail. And it failed. There is no Garden of Eden this side of the fall. What do we have from all the toil? Think of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And 3, 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Solomon, I think, in these passages the two sections that we're going to look at together, is answering this question. What gain, what do you really get from all the work that you put in? And I think that uh, in part, in verses 18 through 23, his answer is going to be nothing. But then in verses 24 through 26, he's going to come back and say, what you get is the joy you had in the doing of the work. And that's, I think, the big idea of this passage. To, to back out a little bit and consider the context, let me, let me draw your attention to the way that Solomon has linked these passages together. So look, for instance, at 2.11 and, and see how that verse begins, then I considered all that my hands had done. And we, we talked in, when we were in 2.1 through 11 about everything that Solomon built in, really, in verses 4 through 8, where he, he sets out to build houses and gardens and vineyards. And it's almost like he's a new Adam seeking to bring about a new creation. And, and in that passage, notice how he says there in verse 10, I kept my heart from no joy, for my heart found joy in all my toil. And this was my reward, the joy of the doing of it. Because, as he continues, when he, when he says he... He sort of stood back to consider all that his hands had done and the toil he'd expended in doing it in verse 11. Behold, all was vanity, all was breath, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And we talked about how, I think what he means is, I couldn't get us back into the Garden of Eden. I couldn't make it so that people are not sinners, and I couldn't make it so that people are not going to die. And that's what he deals with next. But notice how 2.11, then I considered, is matched by 2.12. So I turned to consider. And actually, if we were looking at this in the original, we would see that the, the two opening statements in verses 11 and verse 12 are even closer. They're, they're exact replicas, the two phrases. Uh, so I think they should render them the same way. Either then I considered or so I turned to consider in both places. But by means of that repeated phrase, he's linked verses 1 through 11 
to verses 12 through 17. And, and in verses 12 through 17, he's dealing with death. You notice how in verses, verses 14 and 15, he says at the end of verse 14, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. And then in verse 16, he makes it clear at the end of the verse how the wise dies just like the fool. So in part, his work is vain or breath or vapor because he knows he's going to die and not be able to continue to do it. And then there's that statement in verse 17 where he says, so I hated life. And we talked last week about how he hates life because of what sin and death do to life, which really means he loves life. He loves life, and life is not supposed to end in death. God didn't make people for death. God made people for life, but because of death, he hates life. So I think this is actually a positive statement, not a negative one, because it's affirming the goodness of life and the rightness of, of the hope that death will be overcome. But then notice how verse 17, so I hated life, begins the same way that verse 18 does. I hated all my toil. And again, you've got this link word connection between the end of 2, 12 through 17 and the beginning of 2, 18 through 23, the, the hatred. And what he's saying is he hates life because it ends, which means he loves life, and he hates toil, we're going to see in this section, because he has to leave it to another. He has to take everything that he's accomplished, everything that he's done with such wisdom and skill and ingenuity, and leave it to someone who hasn't worked for it, who doesn't deserve it. And because of that, he hates it. So again, I think in the same way that he hates life because he loves life, he hates toil because he loves toil. And in both cases, I think he's affirming God didn't make the world to be a graveyard like it's become. God made the world to be the clean realm of life, not to be a place defiled by the countless corpses that, that lie in the earth now. God made the world to be a land of life. And God made the world to be a place where a man could engage in his toil and keep doing it, keep doing what he was made, built, created to do, not come to a place where he realizes, I can no longer do this. And I must now relinquish this to someone else who doesn't deserve it. That's what he hates. That's what he hates. We're, we're going to see as we work through this passage that, again, I think there's a, a very clear uh, linguistic, or sorry, uh, well, linguistically based structure um, to verses 18 through 23. And I would ask that uh, the first little screenshot be put up there. Yep. So in verse 18, we're going to see how he explains that he hates his toil because it has to be left to another, an heir, someone who's going to inherit everything that he's done. And that's going to stand across from verse 23, which I read just a minute ago, where he's going to say that all his days are pain, painful and his task is a vexation and there's no rest in it. And, and I think those two verses communicate uh, why toil would be hated. And then verse 19 is going to stand across from verses 21 and 22. And, and both of those verses are going to explain the problem of leaving everything that he's accomplished to someone else. In verse 19, the problem is this person could be wise or a fool. 
And then in verses 21 and 22, the problem is that the one who worked in wisdom, Solomon, is going to have to leave it to someone who didn't work for it, who, did, who hasn't worked in wisdom. And both of those sections, verse 19 and 21 and 22, are going to contain the phrases under the sun and this also is vanity, as the ESV renders it, or vapor or breath. And then in the middle, in verse 20, he's going to say that he turned about and gave his heart up to despair. And we'll talk about uh, what that means when we get to it. Um, before we dive into verse, uh, verses 18 through 23, let me say just a word about, about the way that this, this chapter 2 hangs together. Um, you can take that away now. If, 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 yeah, very good. Um, notice how in verse 10, he speaks of joy. Uh, the ESV renders it pleasure, but it's the same word that we're going to find rendered joy down in verse uh, 26 when he says God to the one who pleases him in verse 26 God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy it's this Hebrew term simcha so in verse 10 he has joy and then in verses 24 through 26 he has joy and then in verses 12 through uh, 17 he hates life and then in verses 18 through 23 he hates life so you could say joy hate hate joy is the is the, the, the arrangement here in chapter 2. Let's look together at verse 18. He says here, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Uh, we, we talked just a moment ago about how this verse starts the same way that verse 17 does. And again, I think that the issue here is that he hates life and toil, again, because of what sin and death have done to life and toil. And he's going to spell out particularly what he doesn't appreciate about this fact in verse 19. But as we're considering this, I would invite you to exercise your imagination and, and consider how you're going to feel, maybe... I mean, some of you in the room have already come to a place where you've retired from the work that you did, and maybe you had to contemplate who was going to take up the roles, the responsibilities, perhaps the business, perhaps the, 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 the practice that you are now relinquishing. And, and those of you who are young, I would invite you to consider what that is going to feel like or, or what you might emotionally be dealing with in that moment. And, and particularly as we continue, we're going to see that Solomon, I think, is contemplating the way that through the course of your life, as you, in, in Solomon's case, as you engage in great building projects, there's so much that you learn, so much life experience that you gain, so many risks that you have to take, so, much, so many opportunities to show courage and to brave difficulties. And then you get to a place where you have to contemplate handing things over to someone with none of that life experience. And I think we can understand why he says in verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And then in verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Now the reason that we read all those statements in Proverbs earlier in the, ser in the service is because we know from Solomon's teaching in Proverbs that he taught 
that parents had a responsibility to teach wisdom to their children. So I want to read again Proverbs 29, 15, which, which Dustin read earlier. It states plainly, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Uh, Solomon taught repeatedly through the Proverbs that if you, Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son, he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And he said things like what we read in 22.15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So these texts indicate that if parents fulfill their responsibility of training and disciplining their children, wisdom results in the heart of the child. Now, every one of those statements about training and discipline producing wisdom is true, inspired by the Holy Spirit and true. And yet they don't tell the whole story. The whole story includes what Solomon is going to say here. And, and what he's going to develop here in verses 18 through 23, and then some more in verses 24 through 26, is that the whole story includes the sovereign good pleasure of God. Look at verse 26 where he says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. To the one who pleases him. Well, who pleases God? You know, literally that, that line reads, to the one who is good in his sight. Who is good in God's sight? Well, Solomon's going to teach over in chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you, you, you don't get to be good in God's sight by always doing what's righteous. There's nobody that accomplishes that. How do you get to be good in God's sight? And I think what Solomon believes is what Paul believes, which is that God sovereignly, freely chooses to set his love on the people whom he chooses. As, he, as we read in Romans 9, the Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And so I think Solomon here in Ecclesiastes 2 is wrestling with the doctrine of election. And he's recognizing something like, I can train and discipline Rehoboam all I want. And the boy can be a fool if God does not give him the gift of wisdom. And we know from what happened with Rehoboam that he turned out to be a fool. He, he listened to the counsel of the men his age instead of listening to the wise counsel of the men of his father's generation. And that resulted in the split of the kingdom in the north and south. And, and we would look, we, everyone looks at Rehoboam and says, what a fool. What a fool. And Solomon here, we don't know when Ecclesiastes was written. It could have been written before Rehoboam was even born. The, the, the things he says here are true. It could have been written after Rehoboam is born. And Solomon has done his best to try to teach wisdom. Try to train him for righteousness. Ecclesiastes 2.19. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. It's, it's up to God to determine these things. He continues there in verse 19. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Or we could say this also is vapor. This also is breath. I think what he's saying is something like this. There's not a lever 
that you can grab hold of and make sure that the one who comes after you is going to be wise. There's not a dial that you can just turn it up and, and add wisdom in there. And there's no handle to grab hold of and redirect things. Human responsibility, train, discipline, absolutely. Divine sovereignty, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. No human being has the power to guarantee that the one who comes after him will be wise and not a fool. Everyone who contemplates relinquishing their responsibilities, handing them off to someone else, is going to face the prospect, this person could turn out to be a fool. And, and you know, if, if you've watched transitions happen, whether they are transitions in coaching or transitions in churches with pastors or transitions in seminary presidents, sometimes it turns out that the next man up is a fool and he could burn everything down. No human being has the power to guarantee that the one who comes after him will be wise and not a fool because no human being has the power to elect unto salvation and grant the divine gift of wisdom. You remember James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It's God who gives wisdom. Solomon's going to say down in verse 24 at the end of the verse, this also I saw is from the hand of God. And he's talking about the wisdom of realizing that the best you can hope for is to eat and drink and enjoy your work. We'll talk about what he means there. But that also is from the hand of God. The, the wisdom to recognize your limitations is from the hand of God. Because he cannot guarantee the wisdom of the one who comes after. And because it could turn out, and it does, that Rehoboam is a fool. Solomon, I think, says here in 2.18, I hated all my toil. In which I toil under the sun. The one who comes after him will rule over all that Solomon accomplished, all that he toiled at with wisdom. And this is a, a very disappointing reality to him. Look at verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Now, as we've been working our way through Ecclesiastes, I've been arguing that we have to read the whole book together from 1-1 to 12-14. And I think if you'll do that, you'll acknowledge this despair cannot be an ultimate despair. Because he's going to come back and affirm repeatedly things like fear God and keep his commandments. Things like God will bring, look at 3-17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. God is going to settle accounts. And as we're going to say in, see in just a few moments, 2, 24 through 26, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So this is not an ultimate despair, and this is not a, a, a resignation to a cynical skepticism when he says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors. If it's not those things, what is it? What, what does he mean here? Well, I want to suggest that what we're reading here is Solomon's account of how he tried to be faithful to the Lord. And he sought good things that he discerned from the scriptures. 
things that concern man's responsibility in the world that God made. Man's responsibility to image the character and likeness of God to all creation. And Solomon undertook that task and he tried to be a good king of Israel. We also know from the book of Kings that he sinned grievously. He also, in Kings, had great wisdom. And he wisely asked for more wisdom. And then we've seen here in Ecclesiastes that he studied and searched to make progress in wisdom. And he's trying to know what does man gain from his toil and what is good for man to do. I think the reason he's despairing here is in part because of what we saw in 2, 12 through 17. This crushing realization. I can't escape death. And I can't make it where anyone else escapes death. And then now in verses 18 through 23, this sort of parallel realization, I cannot ensure the wisdom of the one who comes after me. So I think in part what he's doing is he's despairing of false hopes. He's despairing of accomplishing things that God never gave him the ability to accomplish to begin with. Overcome death. Ensure the wisdom of the one who comes after. These are, these are God's responsibilities. These are God's jobs. So I think this despair in 220 is actually a step in the right direction for Solomon. It's part of him realizing I'm merely a creature. Yes, I'm a, I'm a gifted, wise king of Israel who's anointed by the prophet and designated by David to be king. But that's all. I think he's realizing I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Redeemer. I'm not, I'm not the one that all the prophecies will be fulfilled in. And I'm not going to reverse death. And I'm not going to roll back God's judgments. And I'm not going to renew creation. I think that's what he's turning about and giving up his heart to despair over, over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Now, as a point of application here, I would invite you to consider this question. Are there things that you are trying to control in your life that only God can do? Are there things in your life that you need to despair of? You need to come to the place where you recognize I have no control over this outcome. And it's actually good and right for me to give up that hope. That, that's really what the word despair means. You know, it's got that, if you, if you know some Spanish, you know that espero is, is, is I hope and, and that despair is, is the, the lack of hope. It's, it's a negation of hope. Are there things that you need to stop hoping? that you'll be able to accomplish. I think there, for all of us, there are things that we should righteously despair of. There are hopes that we have that are not biblical, things that God has not promised to us to accomplish. But something interesting happens here in verse, in, in verse 21. Uh, Solomon is gonna stay on the same theme but whereas in verses 18 through 20, he's been speaking in the first person, I hated my toil, in which I toil, and so forth. Look at verse 21. Because sometimes a person, 
He switches to the third person. And he's going to be in the third person, talk about he and him and his and so forth, through verse 23. But it's the same message. And, and in the description here in verse uh, 21, it still sounds like Solomon is describing himself. Look at what he says there in verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Well, that sounds like Solomon. And, it, and he's still dealing with the same theme. I've got to leave everything to the one who comes after me. Now, why, why does he do this? I think he does it because in verses 18 through 20, he's giving us his own personal testimony. And then he moves into generalizing. And it's as though he says, this is the way things typically go. This is the way things happen for everyone in life. So verse 21 there, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago the study, the discovery, the toiling, the ingenuity, the initiative, the sacrifices, the risks, the, the frugality, the self-control, the discipline, the intelligence, the perseverance that all is going to build up to life experience that can't be replicated unless someone has to fight through all that difficulties for themselves, all, all those difficulties for themselves. That's the only way you get all that life experience. That's the only way your character is forged through the flames of all that pain and agony and, and risk and triumph and joy and, and, and perseverance. You can't just say to someone, here, take my character that's been forged in all of that. It's, there's no way to pass it on. And so everything that Solomon has braved has produced who he is. And, and now by putting these statements in the third person, it's, it's almost as though he, he invites us to consider the way that, for instance, this is just one instance of this that I'm sure you've seen happen in, in your own experience. You've known some parents who started out poor and through their hard work and sacrifices, they accumulate wealth and they, they're, they're doing all of this to build a better life for their children. And, and through all their, their struggle, they become people of great character. But then their children grow up in luxury and ease and they have, they have none of the difficulty. And as a result, they are not the people of character that their parents were. That's what Solomon is talking about here. Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. I think he calls it a great evil because he recognizes this is something I would like to change, and I can't. This is something I would like for it not to be this way, and I have no power to make it right. And then he asks this question in verse 22. And here, you know, I've been suggesting throughout this, uh, as we've looked at 1-1 and to up to this point, I've been suggesting that the first unit of this book begins at 1-1 and stretches to 3-15. And the question at 1-3, what does man gain, is repeated in 3-9, what gain? And then that sort of marks this first unit, the repetition of that question, indicating that this is really what he's after. And now here in the center, so we've got the beginning and end, what gain, 
And then these two central units of this first section of the book are death and now the one who comes after. Look at the question in 222. It's not the exact same language. It doesn't use the same Hebrew term yitron that we have in 1.3 and 3.9. Uh, 3, 3, but look at what he says. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? So it's like here at the center, he returns to the key question. This is what often happens in, in these chiastic structures. And, and he's asking the question, what do we get from all the work? What do we have left? And then he continues, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? And that striving of heart, you can, you can feel him articulating the way that in, in our efforts, and notice how he's put this in the third person again, I think he's generalizing what, is it, what has a man from all this. He, he's describing the way that we, we reach and strain and grope and grasp and the wind just slips right through our fingers. Sometimes our hearts are yearning and longing, sometimes soaring in the striving. And then we're left with this question, to what end? For what outcome? As a result of what he finds here, he rounds out his discussion in verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. I think Solomon has in mind Genesis 3, 17 through 19 where the Lord told Adam, in pain you will eat of the ground that I have cursed. And by the sweat of your brow, all your days are going to be full of pain and your work is going to be a vexation. You're going to hit command S and the document's not going to save and the computer's going to crash and everything you did is going to be gone. You know, it's going to happen in all kinds of ways. You're going to get one part of the engine fixed and another part's going to go bad. And parents know what this is like house all cleaned up and then here come the kids <laughs> all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest we are not the first person the first people to, to have difficulties with sleep this is this is the human condition verse 23 this also is vanity he says so I think that in response to all this you know, Solomon, he can't overcome death. He cannot ensure the wisdom of the one who comes after. And we can observe from the history of Israel, from what we read in the Old Testament, that there was a series of kings who were total failures. And, and the culmination of all their efforts was the exile of the nation from the land of Israel. But in the midst of all that, Isaiah began to prophesy, my servant will act wisely. And... There were these prophecies that when the son of David, the descendant of Solomon, the heir of the king of Israel truly arose, death would be overcome. The world would be renewed. And this is exactly what the New Testament is pointing us to. Uh, but here in verses 24 through 26, um, Solomon is going to, I think he's really going to answer this question in verse 22, what has a man, and 1-3, what gain, 3-9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Look at what he says in verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Uh, that's, this is sort of the first 
um, section of this statement. Um, eat, drink, and then the ESV renders this find enjoyment in toil. But I'm gonna I'm gonna offer you a literal translation because I think it's theologically important. I think it's I think it's important biblical biblically theologically. Literally, the text says there's nothing better for a person, for a man, except that he eat and drink and cause his soul to see good. I think those two words are massively important. See good. It's it's ra'ah and tov. These are the same, it's the same expression, well, it's almost the same expression that is used seven times in Genesis 1 as God creates the world and then God saw what he had made and it was good. And, and so I think at one level, Solomon is saying, it's, it's, there's nothing better for you. It's good for you to imitate God. Ephesians 5.1, be an imitator of God as, as a dearly loved child. Imitate God, engage in creative activity, and then thereby cause your soul to, to see good. Do good things and then survey what you've made. That's, there's value in that. It's good for you to do that. I think, I think that's what is suggested by the, the reuse of this phrase from Genesis chapter 1. There's nothing good for a man except that he eat and drink and cause his soul to see good. I'm using this, this expression, cause his soul, uh, because of the way that this verb is formed. Those of you who have studied some Hebrew, you'll know what I'm saying here. Solomon puts this in the hippie. Um, those of you who haven't studied Hebrew, what this means is he, he's, he's commanding people to look a certain way. Now, I think what he's, what he's urging here has to do with both what you do and how you regard what you do. What you do, you should, you should pursue good things. Well, where do we get our knowledge of good? From the Bible. Where do we get our idea about what kind of good activities we should engage in? From God's activity. You imitate the creator. You, Ephesians 5.1. But then I think also there's, a, there's a, a nuance here, cause his soul to see good, Regard your activity a certain way. Regard your activity as a creature. If you, if you come at your tasks expecting to accomplish what only God will accomplish or can accomplish, you will never be satisfied. You will never see good in what you've done. So, so you must embrace your identity as a created human being and then cause your soul to see good in what you've done. I think this has to do with how we, how we think about uh, what we're attempting and, and what we're expecting to accomplish. So again, I would urge us to despair of being God and embrace our dependence upon God. You know, right there in verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink. And then I'm going to skip over that phrase I, I was just talking about and cause his soul to see good. I didn't skip over it. There it is. Look at, look at the last phrase of verse 24 there. This also I saw is from the hand of God. I think he's saying everything there is from the hand of God. Your ability to eat is from the hand of God. Your ability to drink is from the hand of God. Your ability to cause your soul to see good is from the hand of God. He's, he's communicating. You need to embrace your, your, rea your reality as a created human being dependent upon the creator. Receiving from God the daily bread that Jesus taught us to pray for. We embrace our dependence upon him. 
that last phrase there in verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God. I think he's, it's, it's as though he's regarding all the pondering that he's been doing in this book, all the intellectual work that he's been putting into coming to these conclusions. And it's like he's saying, I'm seeing good. I saw that this is all a gift of God, the wisdom that he is, that he's achieved by his strivings. This is from the hand of God. God made us with mouths equipped with taste buds that lead to stomachs that feel hunger for food and satisfaction from food. And God also sovereignly oversees all of the inexplicable factors that lead to fullness of joy or the lack of it. God is sovereign over all of that. And I think that's all contained in that phrase there at the end of verse 24. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And then he continues in this vein in verse 25 saying, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Um, verse 26, he says, for to the one who pleases him, I talked about this a moment ago, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, and really that's everyone, everyone's a sinner, but to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. I think right there, Solomon is dealing with the elect and the non-elect. And he's recognizing that those on whom God chooses to set his love, they will receive wisdom and knowledge and joy. The wisdom that comes from God's revelation of himself that leads to skillful living that results in joy in life. That, that's the goodness of knowing God. And the others, it, he doesn't have to do anything. He, he can just leave them in their sin. They, they, they're, they're condemned in Adam. As soon as they get the opportunity, they start sinning for themselves. And he leaves them. And, and I think what the text is saying is that God sovereignly orchestrates the universe and providentially oversees things such that those who don't know God, they, they're almost like the Egyptians, amassing wealth because the exodus is coming. And at the Exodus, the Lord's going to instruct the people of Israel to ask of their Egyptian neighbors, and the Egyptians are going to give them all their wealth. And, and then Isaiah chapter 60 speaks of how the wealth of the nations is going to be brought into the new Jerusalem. I think, and, and then that happens, that happens in our own personal experience as well. I have known people of fabulous wealth who cannot enjoy the good things that they have. They, they, they have... They have no ability. It, it's exactly what Solomon describes in 5.18 through 6.2. Look, look, for instance, at 6.1. He says, there is an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is breath, or this is vanity. I, I've, I've seen that happen in my personal Experience. And in some of these cases, these wealthy unbelievers wind up funding Christians. They wind up giving their wealth to believers. That's exactly what Solomon says here. To the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity. This is breath and a striving after wind. He, he's communicating that 
It's insubstantial. It's temporary. And it's brief, frustratingly brief. In our experience, the best that we can hope for is the joy in the work that God has given us to do. We're not looking for arrival in this life. There, there will be no arrival in this life. There will only be the joy of the journey in this life. Joy, hate life, hate toil, joy. That's what we're dealing with. The document cannot be recovered. The gates of Eden cannot be opened. But God is with us. God is with us, giving wisdom and knowledge and joy, enabling us to appreciate the food and the drink that he graciously provides. And we can enjoy his goodness together. If you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself something like, well, I can't control whether I'm, I'm, I'm elect or not. You, you know what? You're right. You can't know whether or not you're elect. But here's what you can do. You can respond in faith to the scriptures. You can respond in faith to the Lord Jesus, and you know he's trustworthy. And you know you should trust him. And you should live for him. And you can do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us our creaturely limitations. And we thank you for the good example of Solomon. We praise you for the way that he thought so deeply about his endeavors and what he could and could not accomplish. And we, we thank you for his honesty in him, him speaking of how he despaired of all his toil. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to despair of trying to accomplish what only the Lord Jesus can do. And we pray that you would enable us to embrace our appointed role as your creatures, those who look to you for daily bread, those who find pleasure, joy in doing what you've given us to do. And help us, Lord, to, to see what you have done in the way that you did good things for others and you saw that what you had made you saw that it was all good. And Lord, help us to cause our souls to see good by your grace and for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.